Several years ago, a cartoon appeared in the Leadership Magazine. It showed a marquee in front of a church. The message board was advertising the Light Church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium. Everything you wanted in a church and less. This is the church that the book of James now addresses. Christians with a zero-calorie, low-fat, watered-down kind of faith. It's been said of today's church, the gospel has become so diluted, if it were a medicine, it would heal no one. And if it were a poison, it would harm no one. It's tragic when the church dilutes the demands of the gospel to make it more palatable to society's tastes. It's called easy believism or cheap grace. It's the idea that saving faith is nothing more than responding to an altar call or mouthing a prayer or just signing a card. Jump through a few religious hoops and you're safe for all eternity. You got your fire insurance. Well, the book of James tells us that that's not faith. True, legit, saving faith leaves behind tracks. Real faith shows up in people's lives in real ways. We're saved by faith alone, certainly. But faith that's real is a faith that's not alone. It's a faith that works. Chapter 3 begins with a word to pastors and to teachers. You know, the Jewish teachers, they were called rabbi, which meant my great one. And in the Jewish community, the people revered their teachers. Did you know that under Jewish law, the duty to help a rabbi exceeded even the duty to provide for your parents? People would bring their rabbis all kinds of cool gifts like John Wayne libraries, movie libraries, stuff like that. Needless to say, with such privileges, the Jews had no shortage of people desiring to be teachers. People oblivious to the responsibility saw it as just a cushy job. And since the early Christians maintained the same respect for their teachers as did the Jews, the church was also vulnerable to shady teachers with wrong motivations. Sadly, this is still a problem. When folks find out I'm a pastor, I'm often asked, wow, I wish I was a pastor and only had to work one day a week, if they only knew. Yet there are pastors who've been attracted to the ministry, not because they're called by God, but because they've been looking for an easy job. James 3 starts with a warning for anyone who aspires to be a teacher. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, if that doesn't weed out the applicants, I don't know what will. A teacher wields incredible influence. A plaque hangs on my office wall. A teacher touches one's life forever. A pastor passes out the bread of life. He traffics in spiritual, eternal truths. What a tremendous responsibility. In fact, a pastor's worst sin, in my opinion, is to make the Bible boring. You know, we offer honey from the honeycomb. We need to pour it out in all its sweetness. 
God holds a teacher to a stricter judgment. A Bible teacher has to be three things. Accurate, appealing, and authentic. Are we accurate in what we say? Do we say it in an effective and an appealing way? And do we back up what we teach by how we live? You can't say, listen to what I say, but don't do what I do. That's a hypocrite, not a teacher. A teacher gets no credit for teaching the Bible if he doesn't live what he teaches. A pastor, James says, is held to a higher standard. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Now, James says we stumble in many things, but there's one area in which we're most vulnerable. And this is with our tongue. He's telling us if we can control our tongue, what we say and how we say it, we can successfully navigate life. Your speech, your tongue, is the rudder of your life. Whereas loose lips sink ships. The person who speaks without thinking first is the person who's headed for shipwreck. James continues, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. The human tongue. It's a slab of meat that weighs about two and a half ounces. And yet it's your body's strongest muscle. Did you know that? A tongue can do enormous damage. A single spark from a campfire can burn down a whole forest. Likewise, one idle or hurtful word can sour the attitudes of many, even destroy a whole church. Verse 6 tells us, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. When Satan finds a wagging tongue, he sets it on fire to do great damage. You remember Samson? He caught those 300 little foxes and he tied their tails together and he tied torches to their tails. And then he turned those foxes loose out in the fields of the Philistines and it destroyed their entire crop. Likewise, an out-of-control tongue is Satan's weapon of choice when it comes to doing damage to the church. When the devil finds a loose tongue, he fuels it with evil to burn God's harvest. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Oh, we've tamed all kinds of animals. You've seen the dancing bears and the trained seals, no less, and talking parrots. We can train animals. We can tame the beast and the birds, but no one tames the tongue. The tongue can be guilty of extreme contradiction. Verse 9, For with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. It shouldn't be. 
but it happens. We enter the sanctuary together on Sunday morning to praise God. We worship Him together. Our, our tongues sing God's praise. And then we go out and get in our cars to leave and we cuss out the driver who cuts us off in the parking lot. Blessing and cursing out of the same mouth. How can that be? James tells us, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. And then he says, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? I mean, a tongue is like the spring. It's a fountain. Its source lies deeper underneath, under the surface. This is what Jesus taught us. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In other words, the tongue is just a spigot of the heart. If your heart is holy and yielded to God, your tongue will follow suit. A heart filled with the Spirit will produce kind, pure words. He says, Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Love for God in hurtful words out of the same mouth is as incongruous as olives on a fig tree or as fresh water and salt water from the same pond. What spews from the fountain reveals the source. And it's true with our mouth. Verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now in chapter 2, James told us that real faith is a faith that works. But good works need to be accompanied by wisdom. You need to do the right thing the right way. If you do the right thing the wrong way or at the wrong time, you can undermine the good that you're trying to do. This is why works need to be accompanied with wisdom. Here James associates wisdom with meekness or with restraint. Wisdom doesn't bowl a person over with the truth. Rather, it picks its timing and it works gently, sensitively in that person's life. He says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. God's wisdom and earthly wisdom differ. Earthly wisdom divides. It pits one person against another. James calls it envious, self-seeking, egotistical. Earthly wisdom creates factions and friction. Man's wisdom is always a win-lose kind of proposition. Someone ends up on top and someone ends up on the bottom. This is man's wisdom, whereas God's wisdom is always a win-win deal. Both parties benefit from the proposal or from the solution when God's wisdom is in play. One year, my daughter Natalie, she played in the softball championship. It started raining in the second inning, and it didn't let up for an hour and a half. We were miserable. We were cold. The field was a mud bowl. It was the perfect opportunity for the Little League officials to crown co-champions. I mean, this is little girl softball, man. This is not the World Series. Just let everybody go home happy. It'll do us all good. The association will benefit. Instead, we all stayed there forever and then played in the mud to get a winner. Trust me, nobody won that day. God's wisdom would have looked for a way 
for everyone to benefit. Man's wisdom tortured all to honor a few. Verse 16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Earthly wisdom breeds confusion. When everyone's looking out for number one, there's nothing but chaos. In World War II, Navy personnel coined a term that became infamous, snafu. You know what it means? It's an acrostic that means situation normal, all fouled up. More recently, the Pentagon has coined a new term, FUB, fouled up beyond belief. And this is what we get when we follow man's wisdom. Things get fouled up beyond belief. Just read the newspaper. But the wisdom that is from above, this is what we need, God's wisdom. It's first pure. In other words, it's without duplicity. There's no ulterior motive, no hidden agenda embedded in God's wisdom. And it's peaceable or peace-loving. And it's gentle and it's willing to yield. And it's full of mercy and good fruits. And it's without partiality and without hypocrisy. He says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Man's wisdom looks out for self-interest. God's wisdom looks beyond selfishness to bring harmony and unity. God's wisdom is gentle. It's not demanding or bossy. It's merciful or unbiased. It finds a way to make healthy and righteous compromise. It keeps the peace. Well, those of us living here below, we need wisdom from above, don't we? In our marriages, with our kids, in our church, in our workplace, we need heavenly wisdom. Chapter 4 asks a question, where do wars and fights come from among you? Now this is earthly wisdom, it's envious, it's self-seeking logic, and it's responsible for the conflicts around us. But James gets even more specific here in his diagnosis. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? The Greek word translated pleasure here is hedone, from which we get the term hedonism. That pleasure is life's chief purpose. This is certainly the philosophy of our society today, is it not? People are living for the weekend. They're living for pleasure. It's been calculated. Every week in the United States, 12 million golfers vie for tee times. 9 million tennis players compete across the nets. 4 million skiers glide down the slopes. And half a million hunters and fishermen comb the woods for racks and recreation. We, we are a pleasure-oriented society. And yet, when you live strictly for pleasure, you eventually come in conflict with the people around you. Harmonious, healthy relationships require giving and commitment and sacrifice and unselfishness and humility. Things that aren't necessarily pleasurable, at least at first. The hedonist will end up involved in many broken relationships. Verse 2 tells us, you lust and you do not have. Samuel Johnson once issued the challenge, of all that have tried the selfish experiment, let one come forward and say that he has succeeded. He that makes gold his idol, has it satisfied him? 
He that's toiled in the fields of ambition, has he been repaid? He that has ransacked every theater of sensual enjoyment, is he content? Can you answer in the affirmative? Not one. King Solomon tried the selfish experiment. Gold, ambition, sex. He tried it all. Yet in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 1, Solomon concluded, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. James tells us that the end of the pursuit of pleasure is you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. We fight and we kill and we covet to get the other guy's stuff rather than just simply asking God for a similar blessing. Don't lust, just ask. This sums up really the last 3,000 years of human history. You know, it's been estimated that over the last 3,100 years, only 286 of those years have been without a war someplace on the planet. This means that only 8% of human history has been a time of peace. For every two minutes of peace in the world, there's been an hour of war. I've heard it said, peace is that one glorious moment in the world's history where everyone stands around reloading. Countries battle and neighbors bicker and companies try to bankrupt each other. The world vies for each other's resources rather than asking God for his blessing. It's so simple. It's like two brothers fighting over a candy bar rather than just asking a good and gracious father for another one. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So often, even when we do ask, we ask with the wrong motivation Our concern should be God's glory, not our own pleasure. Let's not ask amiss or ask selfishly. James says in verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. He's not one for mincing, mincing words, is he? Adulterers, adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Hey, we're called to reach the world. We're called to love the world. We're called to evangelize the world. But we're not called to become friends of the world. We're not called to become so relative to the world that we've become a part of their values and their philosophies and their perspectives. We're not to ally ourselves to this world. When we're born into God's family, we take a vow. We take a vow of allegiance to Jesus Christ. We agree to love Him with our whole hearts to make Him the object of our desires. This is why the pursuit of pleasure or profit is a betrayal of that vow. James calls it spiritual adultery. Our hearts belong to Jesus, not the world's pleasures and amusements. Verse 5, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Did you know that the Holy Spirit is jealous of our affections? He's insulted when we flirt with this world, when we become infatuated with the things of this world, when, we're, that when the world, the things of the world preoccupy our attention 
and our desires and our love and our, our free time more than the things of God. The Holy Spirit is grieved. God requires our unrivaled affection. He says, but He gives more grace. Now living in a world full of allurement and deception and temptation, hey, it certainly can be a challenge. How do you reserve your heart for Jesus when so much is tugging at you and pulling you in the wrong direction? How do you do it? The answer is grace. But He gives more grace. God fills our hearts with His love. His love takes the place of all these other things. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 6, verse 16 reads, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to Him. And do you know what's at the top of God's list of those six things? A proud look. God resists the proud. Think you can do it on your own and God will let you try. But admit that you need Him. Admit that you're depending on His grace and that's what He'll give you. He'll give you more grace. He'll give you His enabling and empowering love. Therefore, submit to God. Submit to God. Have you submitted to God? Are you living a submitted life? This word translated submit is the word hupotasso. It means to arrange under or to line up behind. To submit to God is to arrange my life around His word. To get my desires in tow with His will. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, his last words on earth were, Lord, what you will, where you will, when you will. That should be a motto not only in death, but also in life. What you will, where you will, when you will. Verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist is a military term. It means to stand against as in some form of hand-to-hand combat. He's telling us don't run from the enemy. You know, in Ephesians 6, we're told to clothe ourselves with the whole armor of God. But there's one part of the body that's not covered. you know what it is? It's the back. There's no armor for our back. That's because there should never be a retreat. No running scared. We're called on to resist the devil, not retreat. Resist the devil in Jesus' name and Satan is forced to flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Notice the couplets going back and forth. Resist the devil and he's forced to flee. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I love what author Kent Hughes writes. He says, there are two views which the Christian ought to pursue with all that he has. The devil's back and the face of God. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be double-minded. Don't be caught between opinions. Be 100% in with Jesus. Have you sold out for Jesus? If not, you're double-minded. Once I read of a gang of bank robbers. True story. They paused before their planned heist in order to pray. They wanted God's blessing on the burglary. How silly is that? You can't serve God and commit a crime at the same time. 
That's being double-minded. But neither can you truly follow Jesus Christ while living with someone who's not your spouse. That's just as silly. Or saying that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Him, and yet you're cheating on your income tax, or you're stealing from your company, or you're lying to your boss, or you're gossiping about your neighbor. That's just as incompatible. Verse 9, he says, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now James isn't disallowing laughter and mirth. Proverbs 17 verse 22 tells us, A cheerful heart is good medicine. Did you know it takes 72 muscles to frown, but only 14 muscles to smile? Did you know that? Obviously, God wants us to smile much more than frown. He's made it easier for us to smile than to frown. No, when James tells us to lament and mourn and weep, he's encouraging us to be serious about our repentance. You know, our willingness to do whatever God wants should be heartfelt. There's something phony about coming to the altar to weep and to pray and to confess my sin. And then 30 minutes later, I'm out in the foyer telling jokes with the ushers. Something, something not right about that. James is saying to us, don't laugh when you ought to be weeping. And don't weep when you ought to be laughing. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Promote yourself and you'll rise as high as you can go. But humble yourself. Make a point of steering clear from the spotlight and the Lord will promote you to a place to which only He can exalt you. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? God alone is judge. When we judge another, we put ourselves in the place of God. And that's never good. Verse 13, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city... Spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. Now this guy's got it all planned out. I mean, he's going to go to such and such a city. He's going to spend a year, just not two years, one year. He's going to spend a year there. He's going to buy and sell. And guess what? He's going to make a profit. If you've ever started a business, you know what a jump of faith that might be. Make a profit, are you sure? He's got it all planned out. And yet, James says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. How can you be so definitive, so dogmatic? None of us knows what tomorrow holds, is James's point. We're foolish to have our plan set in concrete. When you say, I will do this, or I will do that, you're being arrogant, really. You've forgotten who's in control. God is in control, not you. Life is full of unexpected twists and turns. I love the old saying, life is like fighting a gorilla. You don't rest when you get tired. You rest when the gorilla gets tired. There's a lot in my life that's beyond my control. He says, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I mean, your life, my life, it's like a puff of warm breath on a winter's day. 
It's just that quick. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. How can we speak definitively about the future when there's no guarantee we'll even wake up in the morning? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. It's okay to make plans. It's good to make plans. As long as we acknowledge God's overarching sovereignty and providence over our plans. As James puts it, if the Lord wills, this should always be the caveat. Thomas Akempis used to state, man proposes, but God disposes. That's what we need to remember. The Puritans were fond of the Latin expression, Deo valente, or literally, God willing. The early Methodists, they would sign their letters with the initials D.V., or Deo Valente. They knew that their plans were contingent on God's plans. One of the keys to success in life is the ability to adapt and to be flexible. The realization that God is sovereign. That He is the one who truly controls my circumstances. This is what helps me to maintain the right attitude toward life's uncertainties. The old saying is true. The bend in the road is not the end of the road if you're willing to make the turn. Verse 16, but now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. It was a stormy night at sea as the battleship plowed through the fog. The captain saw a light off the port bow. It seemed to be closing in quickly. The captain ordered the signalman on deck to flash a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. The message fired back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. Captain grew angry. How dare them? He sent back a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a captain. The return message. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a seaman third class. This infuriated the captain even further. This time he sent. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. But then the final message. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. Like the proud captain, many a person has crashed on the rocks of life because they became too arrogant and too stubborn and too rigid to change their course. As James puts it, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Hey, since we don't know what the future holds, or if we even have a future, then while we have an opportunity to do good, then we should do it. Don't save anything for a rainy day. You may may never see that rainy day. James tells us, serve the Lord while you can. Count for Jesus today. None of us are promised tomorrow. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. These are the same Greek words used for the shrieks that come from hell. James is warning the rich to weep and howl. For your miseries that are coming upon you. He says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Imagine how foolish that, that is. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. This world is on its way out. 
The kingdom of heaven is on the horizon. The riches of this world are about to burn up. And yet people are still foolishly investing their lives in earthly treasures. That's foolish. Understand, the Bible never teaches that money is evil. Money is simply a tool. It can be used for good or for bad. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Don't get down on someone just because they're rich. That's not what James is doing here. I've heard it said, don't knock the rich man. When was the last time you were hired by somebody who was poor? James's warning here is not to the rich per se, but to those who are trusting in their riches, hoarding and heaping up their riches. Temporal treasures will corrode and rot. They'll be worthless in eternity. There are two authorities in this life that remind us of the futility of riches. The Bible and the IRS. Verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, the rich people James had in mind had gained their wealth dishonestly. And God saw. He saw how they were cheating the people out of their wages. He says, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. James sees these dishonest landowners who have abused their employees as a Thanksgiving turkey getting fattened up for judgment. He says, you have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. The rich had cheated and had murdered and God had done nothing to stop them. It appears as if God has let them get away with their crimes. It appears. It reminds me of the Wells Fargo agent who stole a single silver dollar every day from the company for 30 years. He would bring the coins home and he would put them in a trunk that he kept up in his attic. But one day... He dropped in his last coin. The attic floor couldn't hold the heavy trunk any longer. And that night, the trunk fell through the ceiling, crashing down on top of the man as he laid in his bed. The wealthy man who gained his riches through dishonesty and crookedness may appear as if he's gotten away with it. It may appear as if God hasn't seen and God won't judge but he will. There'll come a time when he'll put one at one last coin and God will judge. Judgment is coming. God is faithful to judge. James says, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And, and when will judgment truly come? At the second coming of Jesus Christ, before in the last days judgments are promised. Today is the day of salvation, Paul tells us. Right now, Jesus is extending mercy to people, but the day is coming soon when the Lord will mete out justice. When Jesus returns, He'll come to judge the wicked. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. A farmer can't rush the harvest. He has to wait patiently. He has to wait until the fruit is ripe. And likewise, justice and God's judgment will come, but in His timing, not ours. 
He says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. That's pretty ominous. Time is running out, he says. You don't have a single second to grumble or to squabble. Hey, you have work to do. We need to be leading people to Jesus. The judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. The Bible and church history is full of examples of men and women who endured hardship, awaiting God's promise. And James here mentions Job, a classic example of steadfastness in the midst of suffering. He says, you have heard of the perseverance of Job. And you've seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You remember the end of the story of Job, Job 42 verse 10. It concludes Job's horrible ordeal. It says, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. The end of Job's life proves that you never lose out while waiting on God. Perseverance always has a payday. Verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Here James repeats a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Here again is where faith leaves tracks. Christians need to be people of their word. In verse 13, James asks, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Make prayer, your for, make prayer your first resource, not your last resort. Turn your cares into prayers. If anyone's suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Now here's a disease that is especially common among Christians. It's called cheerful-itis. It's like epidemic. And it's terminal. There's no cure for cheerful-itis. It begins in the heart, and then it spreads quickly. Soon the mouth begins to smile, and the toes begin to tap, and the hands start to clap, and the arms raise high in the sky, and even the feet dance. The only relief for cheerful-itis is to sing psalms. Is to sing, man, sing. To keep from exploding with joy, our only release is to sing praise to God. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now isn't it strange? We use being sick as an excuse to skip church. Whereas James says, it's a main reason to go to church. He says, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Now understand, I'm not against doctors. God chooses to heal us both medicinally and supernaturally. Yet sometimes I think we're too quick to put our trust in doctors. If you come forward on a Sunday morning and ask the elders for prayer, understand, they're not going to ask you for proof of insurance. They're not going to charge you a copay, and they're not going to have you sit down and fill out a bunch of forms that makes you sick anyway. You won't even have to sit for hours in a waiting room. 
The elders love God's people and they've been given the responsibility of praying for those who are sick. And notice with their prayer, James tells the elders to anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. Now in the Bible, the olive oil is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. The elders are to pour some oil on the person who's sick, on their forehead, or maybe on the particular wound. And just a little dab will do you. The oil has no magical powers or even any medicinal effects, but it is a point of contact for our faith. And this is what makes it strategic. Remember, Jesus yielded to the will of God, to God his Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, or the Garden of the Oil Press. Like an olive, Jesus was crushed under the burden he carried. And his healing power now flows from his sacrifice, and thus the oil of the olive is a reminder of his passion. Notice verse 15, James adds, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. It's the prayer of faith, not the olive oil, that prompts God to heal us. But the oil gives us a tangible target for our faith. Now, don't you need a target? We all need targets. It's one thing to say, let's go out and shoot our guns. But without a target, that can be dangerous. We all need a target, and we need a target for our faith. We ask God to heal us. But when? But how? But why? Well, this anointing with oil answers those questions. When? When the oil is applied. We're trusting that God's going to heal us when the oil is applied. How? Well, the oil represents the power of the Holy Spirit. We're trusting God to heal us through His Spirit's intervention. And why? Because the body of Jesus was crushed like an olive. And His healing now flows from his sacrifice. The anointing of oil upon our head or upon the wound, this gives us a target for our faith when we pray for healing. You know, Roman Catholics, they practice the sacrament of extreme unction, where they anoint a person with oil in preparation for their death. How ironic. The New Testament practice is a means of healing, not a precursor for death. And then verse 15, if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Now there are times when a physical ailment is directly brought on by a person's sin. But not always. Remember Job's sufferings were of no fault of his own. Paul's thorn in the flesh was because of his many revelations. Not because of any particular sin. And yet when the sin and the sickness are directly related. Then the forgiveness and the healing occur simultaneously. Verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Some physical ailments have psychosomatic causes. I think this is underestimated in the, the healthcare field. I think the stress of guilt, the shame of sin can have an adverse effect upon us physically. Sin can elevate a person's blood pressure. Or attack their immune system. Or rob them of sleep. Often the lines etched in a face are caused by the guilt that is being carried by that person's soul. Secret sins get buried spiritually 
And they find a way of pushing themselves up to the surface of our lives in the form of physical maladies. I think you could say sin is harmful to your health. Some folks suffer mysterious symptoms. And they try all kinds of treatments. Drugs and herbs and homeopathic cures. But here's what they may not have tried. They've never taken a ruthless inventory of their sins. They've buried stuff under lies and under cover-ups and under self-deception. And it's eaten away. It's eaten away at their soul, their spirit, their relationship with God, their relationship with others, even their health. But what if they finally came clean? What if they admitted it? And confessed it and got it out in the open. Imagine the relief that would come. Imagine the burden that would be lifted. Perhaps it's time for you to confess your sins and be healed. Reminds me of the freshman in college. On his first trip to the laundromat, he had very little experience at this. His mom had done it all for him. He took his mesh bag full of dirty clothes and he just tossed the bag with all the dirties in the bag, still in the bag, he just tossed it in the washing machine. Well, when he emptied the bag to fold his clothes, he was disappointed. His pants and his shorts, they were all still dingy. When an older lady, she had kind of watched him, and, and she explained to him that if he really wanted his clothes to be thoroughly clean, he had to separate them before he put them in the washing machine. And this is how we should treat our sin. You know, some people just make a veiled ambiguous, kind of a general admission of sin. And they wonder why they still feel dirty. A serious confession gets specific. And it gets thorough, as thorough as possible. And we can lay out our sins before God and He'll forgive us. You know, in Roman Catholicism, you enter a dark booth and you confess your sins to a priest. In psychotherapy, you lie on a couch and you confess your sins to the psychiatrist. Today, folks are so desperate to be forgiven, they go on television and they confess their sins to Oprah or Dr. Phil or Jerry Springer. Please, I hope no one from our church ever goes on Jerry Springer. (laughs) But you know what God tells us to do? He tells us to go to church and confess our sins to one another so that we can be healed. True confession is about living in an open, transparent kind of environment. It's about emptying my closet of all its skeletons. It's about being humble and honest with my weaknesses. Pride causes hypocrisy. Humility allows us to be real with our struggles. God wants His church to be a grace-filled, judgment-free zone. A place where we can be honest and we can live in true confession and in true forgiveness. Well, next, James makes us such a hopeful promise. He tells us, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What an incentive to pray. That your prayer avails much. It's been said, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. God answers the persistent and the God-glorifying and the heartfelt prayer. And James gives us an example. Elijah. He was a man 
with a nature like ours. Oh, Elijah, he called fire down from heaven. He was that guy. He was a superman. No, that's not what James says. James says he was a normal man. He was weak and he was frail and he had a nature just like you and me. Oh yeah, he stood up to the prophets of Baal and he called down fire from heaven. But you remember what he did afterwards? He tucked tail and he ran from that wicked old woman Jezebel. Elijah could stand strong, but he also grew discouraged and even tried to quit. No, Elijah was a regular guy. He put his britches on the same way that we do, but he lived a righteous life. He desired to please God and he knew how to pray. And if you have a similar life, you live a similar life, you have a similar desire, and if you learn how to pray, you too can be used by God. We're told how Elijah prayed. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Here's how Elijah prayed. He prayed passionately. He prayed in participation with God's will. And then he prayed persistently. The Old Testament says that he prayed seven times. Seven times he prayed until finally there appeared a rain cloud the size of a man's fist. Just a little bitty cloud. But Elijah said to his servant, he said, man, he said, God is bringing rain. Hey, you better get home because a real frog strangler gully washer is about to come up. It's about to happen. All he, all he saw was a little, little cloud in the sky. But rain came. Do you pray passionately? Do you pray in participation with God's will? And do you pray persistently? You should, for remember, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And if God hears a righteous man, you know he hears a righteous woman. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We need to reach out in love, not only to a lost world, but to fallen saints. We need to remember it's never over till it's over. We need to go get them when they fall. In conclusion, I hope you're leaving some tracks. I hope you're making a mark. I hope there's evidence of your faith. Do you live what you believe? We should adopt James's attitude. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Let's be doers of the word, not hearers only. And there we have the wonderful book of James.